Welcome to this week's edition of Good Books Radio. Audiobooks.com is the chief underwriter for Good Books Radio, which is produced by UTRGV Media Services for Rio Grande Valley Public Radio. And now, here's your host, Dr. John Cook. Welcome once again to another edition of Good Books Radio. I'm your host, Dr. John Cook. And with me today is Dr. Serene Jones, who is president of the historic Union Theological Seminary in the city of New York. She's the first woman to head the 180-year-old institution. Jones occupies the Johnson Family Chair for Religion and Democracy. She is the past president of the American Academy of Religion. Jones came to Union after 17 years at Yale University, where she was the Titus Street Professor of Theology at the Divinity School and Chair of Women's, Gender, and Sexuality Studies at Yale University. Jones is the author of several books, including Trauma and Grace. She's a child of the Oklahoma Plains a daughter of a university president and a single mother, sister, cancer survivor, theologian, minister, news commentator, public intellectual, and devoted teacher. That's an impressive resume. The title of the book is Call It Grace, Finding Meaning in a Fractured World. Ms. Jones, welcome to the program. Well, thank you. I'm so happy to be in conversation today. It's it's a great book. It's a soul-bearing book, uh, and I I want to get into it in, in, in great detail. But let's start with your your family roots. Uh, you, you mentioned in the in the in the bio that you're you're an Okie, and uh, your roots are oh, your ancestors are outlaws turned sod busters. <laughs> yes. Um, so when I uh, sat down to write this book about grace, uh, it was initially going to be a more um, abstract theological book, but found that I couldn't talk about grace without telling my own experiences of it, and I discovered that I couldn't talk about my own life without talking about what I grew up in and the place that formed me, and that was Oklahoma. Um, the book begins by telling the story of my uh, grandma, Ida Bell Seitz, who um, was born before Oklahoma became a state. Her parents were Sooners who picked up their homestead, driving a riding a horse fast to grab a flag when the territory was opened up. And um, her eventual husband, my grandpa, came on the first train to Oklahoma. Um, I call my grandma's family sodbusters because they turned the prairie uh, into fields of wheat. And I talk about my grandpa's family um, as coming from a family of outlaws because they got to the state running from the law. So <laughs> it's a pretty interesting story how we all got there. It is. Now, we want to distinguish between theology and religion in just a minute, but let's talk about the disciples of Christ, that particular uh, belief system, and the influence of John Calvin on on, on your beliefs. Yes, so I couldn't tell the story about my uh, great-grandparents and grandparents in Oklahoma without describing the church that formed them. They were both lifelong members, as is my whole family to this day, of the Christian church, Disciples of Christ. But when they joined... Um, that denomination. It wasn't a denomination. It was um, a fellowship. It was a social movement. It was a combination of Presbyterians and Baptists who came together and decided that denominations were a problem. It divided Christians and that we needed a more simple faith and an open faith. And so they formed on the western frontier this movement called the Disciples of Christ, which Um, allowed lay people to do communion, um, which had believers' baptism like the Baptist and had a focus on communion every Sunday, but also had a sort of commitment to the intellectual study of the Bible that you found in the Presbyterian tradition. 
My own influence in that has come from uh, extensive work I've done on John Calvin. Uh, my family are in that disciples tradition, Calvinists, going back generations and generations and generations. And in fact, one of the most precious things I have in my home library is Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, um, first published in 1559. I have a later edition, but it, it goes back generations and generations. It still has that red dirt from Oklahoma on its pages. Uh-huh. And that book, Institutes, uh, helped you to understand the worldview that allowed your family to survive all those years. Absolutely. Yes. Um, from my own study of Calvin and that book, I came to understand how this book that nowadays we look at as kind of archaic and old school, actually when he was writing it, he was writing it to a, a very uh, discouraged and um, outcast group of people who were trying to find <clears throat> meaning in a world that seemed meaningless to them and to help them survive in hard times, which is exactly why for generations of uh, people in North America and the U.S., that same book, as they've struggled with hard times, has supported them. And at the center of the Institutes is the notion of God's universal grace. And we do want to get into sin and grace, but, but first let's, let's distinguish a couple of other things. The foundations of this book are a very powerful and clear theology and then the rest of the book is your memoirs about being buffeted about by everything from abuse to life-threatening illnesses to uh, struggling with forgiveness. Um, but, but theology versus religion, what is the quick and dirty distinction you can make there? Religion refers to the institutions, the church buildings, the doctrines, the long list, the rules, the books that uh, create communities and give them structure. Uh, theology, uh, as distinct from that, is asking questions about the big stories we tell ourselves about the meaning of our lives and the place or possibility of God in that. And in a sense, theology is best done when it rises above the institutions, can get outside of them, and look upon them and our own lives and ask the big questions. Uh, what's the purpose of it all? The six parts of theology, I, I, I want to touch on those a little bit. The first one is God is mystery. Yes, so I thought it was important to say that right off the start uh, because too often in our religious communities we go there thinking that we are going to find every answer to the questions of our life and its meaning. And in fact, those who understand our deep traditions know that an essential part of who God is is something that will forever be beyond our knowing because God is not an object that we know like we know a paperweight or a friend. Um, but that mystery is not something to be afraid of or try to penetrate. It's part of the gift of our knowing. The second point is the infinite mystery is our creator, sustainer, and the Alpha and Omega. Yes. Well, Divine love. Yes. So that is um, uh, the beginning of my description of what we can know about uh, this mysterious divinity and that is that um, God, or as I often talk about it in the book, divine love, is the place from which we come into existence as human beings. Um, it is a place in our lives that is constantly available to us as sustaining energy. And I also believe that ultimately whatever awaits us um, in the great beyond is love. So it consummates our lives as well. 
The third point is about Jesus. Jesus stands as the truest and most vivid and profound human manifestation of that life force. Yes, and there I'm talking about in my own experience as a Christian, uh, Jesus is the way that I have come to know the reality of that divine love. But I'm very clear to say that knowing it through Jesus um, does not mean I know it to the exclusion of other ways in which divine love has been revealed to me in my life that are in consonant with what I learned from the Gospels and Paul's letters. Um, but it also means that I don't think that believing in the truth revealed to me through Jesus Christ in any way rules out um, similar truths about ultimate love that many of the world's religions have also at the center of what they proclaim. It's not an exclusive religion. Uh, and, and that's a powerful statement. You talk about others echoing those same themes, uh, those Jesus truths, uh, Abraham, Moses, Muhammad, Buddha. Um, number four, God does not stay at a distance, but constantly seeks to transform our lives by asking us to awaken to the divine presence. Yes, I believe that this divine love is not something that stays far away as an ideal towards which we reach, but actually is personally and constantly being made available to us. And when we open our lives to love, we are transformed by it. It changes the way we understand ourselves, our world, and it profoundly shifts the way we act in the world. This is, this is something that, that's really important to me, the notion that God is always there. We just aren't paying attention. Yes. And the, 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 the fifth point adds to that. When you catch glimpses of this truth, you become painfully aware of how asleep you've been, how most of us spend our lives as if that brilliant love of God does not exist, oblivious to it. Yes, so right there I put in the theology that I hold, the minute you open your eyes to understand love and grace, the reality, the painful, hard reality of how broken our lives are and how little love is reflected in those lives uh, becomes obvious to us. It's like the frame shifts on the camera and you can suddenly see the brokenness in a way you hadn't before. And that's sin. That's a very simple discussion, um, a definition of sin. Sin is the lies that we live that are against love. And the transformation that happens when you wake up to grace from sin is overwhelming and real. Yes, and anyone who has awoken to grace um, knows that that power of love um, is not a weak power. It is a mighty power, and it, it consumes you, and it, it affects every inch of your being. And it's right there around you, inside of you, um, you know, before your eyes. It's a matter of opening your eyes and opening your heart to it. Tremendous. And that's a great lead-in to, to the rest of the book where you talk about your own experiences and how you found grace in some really difficult challenges. Um, distinction between sin, or, or not the distinction, the dialectic between sin and grace is something that, that carries throughout the book. Sin not being the traditional version of original sin because you're born into it, but societal original sin is an important structure to, to, for me to talk about. Yes, and that is something that I got from John Calvin. Um, John Calvin was very aware that when we talk about the brokenness of the world or sin or the lies that we leave, there's many ways to name it. For him, he used the term original sin. We don't just talk about particular bad things that we personally do. 
but also that we are born into a world that has structures and systems, be it family systems, um, neighborhood systems, city systems, that shape us in profound ways and stop us from living the loving lives that we're called to live. And I, in that context, talk about how sin can help us understand um, why we have the levels of poverty we have in this country, how we can think about the legacy of slavery and racism, um, how we think about the entrenched reality of patriarchy and the oppression of women. Those are those are all those are all sin, and they're collective in nature. Now, you uh, describe your grandparents a little bit. Ida Bell to me sounds like a saint or an angel, and, and Dick Jones, her husband, not quite so much. <laughs> yes, um, they were a very interesting two grandparents to have. Uh, my grandma loved Jesus and loved the sweet Jesus story. I think that woman never doubted the universal grace and love of God, and it filled her heart and her being and all of her interactions. My grandfather, on the other hand, um, I think feared God um, more than experienced the love of God, and he also um, feared God because he wrestled with the sin in his own life. Um, he was a brilliant uh, litigator, um, a judge, um, a very significant figure in Oklahoma history, um, but he was also um, a person uh, with deep roots in racism um, and uh, sexism and um, sexual abuse and abusive views of women. And I lay all that out in his complexity and what does it mean for me now two generations later to deal with that. Now, the heritage of racism is a big deal. Your father was a, a, a different breed uh, when it came to racism. In fact, the story of, of spitting on his face is one that I think you ought to tell us, our listeners about. I describe uh, my first realization of the power of theology and the power of faith um, when I was a young woman. Um, and I had gone to a local hardware store with my father to hand out campaign brochures. Um, he was running the campaign for the school board in uh, Richardson, Texas, um, and they were running an African-American man, a Jewish woman, and um, a white dentist. And this was in the mid-60s. Uh, tensions in Dallas were high around race, and as my father stood there handing out flyers, three men approached us, and I had never experienced this myself, but they spit in his face and walked on. And it, it revolted me, it terrified me as a, as a little girl. Um, I reached up to hold his hand, and astonishingly, my father wiped his face off and wiped the spit from my hair, and said to me, Serene, never forget that we are all children of light and children of darkness, all of us equal before God, saints and sinners. And that, that's it, so powerful. Uh, it, it blew me away. Here was a man who had every right in the world to be furious, and he, um, before God, was um, immediately forgiving, and not only that, he saw his soul and their soul wrapped up together in the love of God and in brokenness. 
let's turn to your mother, who was a, a strikingly beautiful woman, but uh, never really connected with love in a way that I can, I can read. Yes, so all of the stories in my book are about different ways that people do or don't experience grace. And as I describe my mother, um, from how everyone would have viewed her throughout her life from the outside, um, in her beauty and in her wonderful forms of social graciousness, um, seemed to be the epitome of grace and love. Um, but in my family, uh, we knew a different mother, a mother who um, struggled with the fact that she never felt and never had a chance to realize her own potential and um, harbored lots of anger um, at the world about the turns that her own life had taken, dealing with alcoholism in her family and her brother's suicide and how those things... Um, within her ate away at her in ways that people rarely saw because the exterior was so beautiful. Um, but in the family, we saw it and, and suffered for it. Yeah, and, and, and let's, let's just mention the suffering at least. It, it, it was almost like you were never quite good enough to please her. Yes, never good enough to please her. I think it was, it's also, and it's probably true for mothers and daughters, um, from two generations and the possibilities before them, but I think there was always a sort of anger in her with respect to her daughters, and they had all these opportunities and were doing things and going places that she never had, and instead of being amazed and awed by it, um, she was angered by it, and in the story I tell, her last act of anger, which was the most devastating of all acts to our family. Um, and I, um, so the story is that um, my mother, who passed away three years ago, um, had a terrible illness called progressive supranuclear palsy. Um, and in the last six months of her life, um, revealed to first me and then my two sisters and eventually my father um, that she had had a longstanding affair um, with a close family friend. And it was a shock to all of us. We had no idea. Um, it was a shock most of all to my father, um, who she never regretted or relented um, in any way. She talked about it constantly to everyone she could, whose ear she could grab. Um, large groups of our friends eventually found out about it from her. And watching my father both forgive her and care for her as she passed, and she died not ever apologizing or regretting, but also to watch his wrestling with his own faith and his world falling apart. Uh, when he has to look back on almost 60 years of his life and wonder now which parts of it were true and which were lies. And, and, and that's just a, a wonderful example of grace uh, in action. I, I, was, I was awed by that. I, I was just sure that I couldn't be the same. <laughs> well, no one, no one could be... Um, the same after what uh, he suffered, but the the power of his wrestling and his determination to find meaning again in his life, which is still an ongoing struggle. Let's 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 turn quickly to the, the dust of India, because you spent a, a a good deal of time there and, and almost died from the yes. from dysentery. Yes, I have um, two stories in the book about my own. 
um, encounters with death, because I think those are also times in everyone's life, either their death or the death of a loved one, when you see with clarity um, things that you can't see in the course of everyday life. And the first for me was when I was um, uh, in seminary. I took a year and traveled to India and um, got very severe case of amoebic dysentery. And I was so determined to stay um, in the poverty of India, which I was awakening to. In fact, one of the most um, educative moments of my life was when the doctor who diagnosed the amoebic dysentery um, told me that now in my body I was going to experience what most poor people in India experience for their entire lives. And that's debilitating um, the debilitating effects of dysentery. But I did not have a clear enough mind as I got sicker and sicker um, to leave. Um, and one um, day I got on the wrong bus, um, leaving the seminary where I was studying, and ended up on a platform in a town whose name I still don't remember. And um, basically um, thinking for um, all I understood that my life was over and that I was dying. And one of the most remarkable moments in that realization that I would simply disappear and no one would even know who I was um, or be able to tell my sisters and my parents what happened. Um, I saw a man on the platform um, who in that moment I perceived as God um, looking at me um, but looking at me as um, not particularly special, but as part of that big world of people called um, the grass. And all I could say to myself again and again was, um, um, all is grass, um, all life is grass, which is um, stanza from the Psalms. Um, I was found later that evening by a woman from the seminary who lived in that town who brought me home, and the uh, uh, young women in the dorm where I was staying nursed me back to health. Um, I've never completely recovered from it, um, but I also think that it's in those moments when you realize that your life um, could mean nothing, that you could simply disappear, that the beauty of it, of your existence uh, flashes before you. And, and the beauty of the caring of, the, of your sisters at the seminary, not your biological sisters, but the kindness of the young women there to, to nurse you back to health was really something that struck me as, as another great example of grace. Yes, it, they, the grace was in their love and their care for me. Literally gave me life again. Well, I, want, I don't want to lose all our time before I get to uh, one of my favorite themes because I, I'm i not a dyed-in-the-wool Okie, but I did work and live in, in Lawton, Oklahoma for five years, and I have a lot of friends there, and uh, Oklahoma means a lot to me. And that dark day when Timothy McVeigh blew up the Murrah building affected so many people, and it also affected you and your family and thoughts about forgiveness. Yes, in the book I write extensively about that horrible day. I was teaching a class at Yale at the time um, when the class ended. I got the phone call um, that um, the Murrah building had been blown up. It's still even hard to talk about to this day. Um, 
it was difficult to write about. Um, my brother-in-law at the time had been across the street at, in the uh, YMCA, and um, we we did not hear from him for quite some time. Um, my sister was at the time working uh, near downtown, and um, in the swirl of the aftermath, um, I described the, the the terror of not knowing whether those people you love are alive or dead, and then in the days that followed, dealing with the traumatic aftershock of it as, as one body after another, many of them of children were pulled from the rubble. And one of the most, um, as I write about it, um, difficult things about dealing with the figure of Timothy McVeigh is I know in the United States so stereotypically um, people think of a terrorist as someone from another country. Um, but Timothy McVeigh was homegrown, and my sisters and I talked about how he could have been one of our high school boyfriends. I mean, this was a man who did a horrendous act of violence um, and yet um, could have been our next-door neighbor. And how does one wrestle with that? Um, I also write about the odd, the uncanny coincidence that my sister in Oklahoma City, who had been a public defender of capital um, capital punishment cases, an ardent opponent of the death penalty, um, had had one of her, um, one of the people she had defended, Sean Sellers, um, executed. And she was one of the few people with her family that came out against the death penalty for Timothy McVeigh, saying that um, that killing another person never delivers the kind of relief that victims think it will. And then my other sister was pastor in Terre Haute, Indiana, which was where McVeigh was sent eventually for his execution. And her church, a disciples' church, had become uh, very activist against the death penalty and were outside the prison um, praying when he was finally executed. So both my sisters bookend that very um, terrible, um, awful, awful moment in our American history. Yeah, and, and this was really meaningful to me because it was the first time I ever thought the death penalty was okay was for Timothy McVeigh. I, I couldn't get over that right away. It took me a while. Um, you talk about mercy and justice. That's probably another distinction we ought to make here. Yes, and I, in, as I write about this, um, McVeigh and the Murrah building, I am having the same struggle that you describe. As my sister seemed to have moved to a place of forgiveness, and I couldn't get there. I was opposed to the death penalty, and I wanted him dead. Um, the rage in me, the the desire for revenge, the desire that some some kind of ultimate justice be meted out, was so strong that I could not get beyond it, and I was going against my own principles. Um, but it was a there was a moment I was also going through my own divorce at the time, and. There was a moment when I realized that the kind of rage that made me want him dead um, was not that different from the kind of anger that I couldn't let go of in relation to my failed marriage, and that all of that anger was was not hurting anyone but me. 
and that until I could let go of that anger, it would destroy me and eat me up inside and stop me from experiencing the power of love in the world. Well, I hope our interview has touched our listeners because it, it, this is such a rich book. Call it Grace is the book. One minute uh, final thought on grace. Love. It is love, and it is a powerful, not just personal force, but a powerful social force and one our country needs right now desperately. Thank you so much. We've been talking with Serene Jones. The book is Call It Grace, Finding Meaning in a Fractured World. It's a great read, and I recommend it very highly. I remind our listeners that if you don't hear our regularly scheduled broadcast, you can catch up with us on our YouTube channel, Good Books Radio, Strong and Cook. Thanks for listening, and make it a great day.